you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. What up, what up? This is your boy Rob Clark welcoming you to the 22 November Network. Get ready for another exciting edition of the Lone Gunman Podcast featuring me. That's right, your boy Rob Clark coming at you. Stay tuned. Be right there. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 46 of the Lone Gummin' Podcast. This is your host, Rob Clark, coming at you this week. Russ LaChapelle is back, and we're talking about the medical evidence in the case. Make sure you go back and listen last week to get to the first part. This is some complicated stuff, people. We're going to have links up at 22novembernetwork.wordpress.com to help you with your visual aids and further reading. Because it's important that you read some of the exhibits as it pertains to this case. Because it does get a little complicated in about what, what we're getting ready to talk about here. In uh, getting the body from Parkland to Bethesda and everything in between. And, uh, and also including the autopsy. So Russ, welcome back first of all. And let's, Thanks Rob. And, and let's dive right into where we left off. We had Kellerman with the body alone. So how do they get him out of Parkland now? Well, actually, we have William Greer. That's right. Greer, Greer. Kellerman's out in the uh, emergency room area. There's nothing specific that says exactly where it was. Anyway, so we have William Greer, by his own testimony, remaining with the body. That's it. Warren Commission testimony. There's uh, Earl Cabell separated from his wife at a point in time, which uh, creates uh, a slow bit of speculation on my part, but... Uh, I see that this the, the the body has to get out of that casket at some point. According to Lifton, it's done in Air Force One. I have problems with that because there's just too many people who have seen that, and there's a little bit of I don't know about that. So I, in time, I looked at this through all this evidence, and I saw by examining it the possibility of Earl Cabell and William Greer after the casket was sealed opening up that casket because if you look at the pictures of the Secret Service loading that casket on the Air Force One, you can see the handles are up. So the seal was broke by that time. That means it had 
happened before that time. So in my theory, I see the body being removed from that bronze casket in trauma room one by Earl Cabell and uh, also uh, William Greer, who has the clothes, and this is important too, because we nobody saw a hole in the back of Kennedy's body to clean him up. So now, how is this body going to get out of trauma room one with nobody seeing it? That's a very interesting question, but uh, there will be a picture on this part two of a layout of the whole trauma room area and the emergency room area. And you will see that in trauma room three, there is a door that leads into an area adjacent to it called major medicine. And at that point in time, there was nobody in that area. So with everybody away from that trauma room one, John Connolly is now with door closed in trauma room two. Jacqueline Kennedy is away from the door at this point, awaiting to leave with the bronze casket, and that's documented that she stayed right by once it came out of trauma room one. I see that this body is brought out on some kind of uh, maybe wheelie cart or this or that out of trauma room one into trauma room three into major medicine. Doors closed. Now everybody comes back and we have all of a sudden William Greer is no longer around because he is not the guy who drove the O'Neill ambulance to Love Field. It's documented that Andrew Berger did. So by William Greer's own testimony of staying with the remains, if the body was in the bronze casket when it left the dock, and William Greer is not with the body that we knew was in the bronze casket, he had to be with it at a different place. And this is where my theory comes into place, and that Kennedy's body, at a point in opportunity, was brought out of major medicine and brought down the tunnel. Now, we have another little interesting scenario, and I'm going to bring up a man that's not too, oh, not too on the up and up, and he was first brought in as information in the mental pill Kennedy uh, segment, which has now been no longer available, but you can't see it on the internet. A man by the name of John Liggett. He's a well-known mortician who worked at the Wrestling Nursing Home, or Wrestling uh, Cemetery. And he was called away, and he was called to Parkland Hospital. Although, O'Neill Ambulance Company was the one who had the control over this the basket and all that stuff going on. So why is Liggett there? Well, his wife in that series says that John Liggett called her from Parkland Hospital at 2 o'clock. And if you do a close examination of the timeline and all this stuff, John Liggett and that time are perfectly in line with the goings-on. It fits perfectly. 
So I see William Greer and John Liggett, who who drove a black hearse for the Wrestling Cemetery Company. He, he had access to that thing. He's down on the other end of Parkland Hospital. Greer and John Liggett load this body into that black casket, a black uh, hearse. Now, whoa, somebody had to see the black hearse, right? Well, just so happens that the Warren Commission testimony of Nancy Powell, she tells about seeing this black hearse leaving Parkland on the other side. Now, hang on, hang on, Russ. Nancy Powell, for people that don't know who she is, did she have another name they might be more familiar with? Yeah, Tammy True. She was a stripper for Jack Ruby. Thank you. <laughs> Very interesting, huh? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about Nancy Powell's testimony, she goes, there you go with her for several pages if you look at the Warren Commission testimony. It's a lot of blah, 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 blah. And she finally gets to this point where she makes this observation, and she not only was the one who saw it, she had a witness. And in her testimony near the very end, you can see her almost, please bring this witness to back up what I'm saying, okay? But, of course, what the Warren Commission do? Eh, they don't call the guy. Imagine that. Isn't that amazing? And what's also interesting is that the Warren Commission didn't call the best person who saw the assassination, William Greer, uh, William uh, Newman. They also didn't call Vernon O'Neill, Aubrey Wright, and Dennis McGuire. These were all important people that the chain of custody for this body or what the events that happened, they're necessary parts. And the Warren Commission is obfuscating, obviously, this information. Now... Why are they doing this? Well, because we can't solve this this whole thing 52 years later. Uh, it's starting to kind of make sense that something crazy is going on here. So anyways, Nancy Powell sees this black hearse taken off with this body. And if you read, if you have any access to the Cooper film, you will see Air Force One taking off from Love Field. And at the very end, just before it cuts away to a little, uh, they were having a little news thing. There's a little brief that comes after. Just as that's cutting away, you will see the white O'Neill ambulance sitting next to the fence and what appears to be a black hearse in the same frame. Well, that's interesting. Yes. So now you can't quite make it out real well, the Blackers, but it looks kind of good, okay? And this all fits into all the other stuff. So what we have naturally is the ability for this body not to be in that bronze casket before it went in at Air Force One, according to David Lifton's theory. And it works a lot better. Uh, because when Air Force One landed at Andrews Air Force Base, we have a very interesting testimony which was uh, kind of held back in the House Select Committee's thing. 
guy's name is uh, Lipsy. And he describes the fact that everybody thought bronze casket had the body in it. And at that time, they're unloading Kennedy's body into a black hearse Air Force, at, at, at Andrews, Andrews Air Force Base, okay? And he's what, he's what he's saying is we have a decoy ambulance at this point. Now, what's interesting about Mr. Lipsy is that he doesn't believe there's a conspiracy. Yet he's offering us this information which ties into what eventually becomes David Dennis's uh, observation. You see this. You start to pull all this together because a black hearse gets to the back of that Bethesda. And we have enough timeline. Uh, there's enough room in the timeline there to start setting up the scenario for my theory to hold water. Now, my, most of what I've said is based upon evidence. There is slight speculation. Uh, my Earl Cavill becomes a little more deeper because Earl Cavill was the mayor of Dallas, and he left that position, and then he became a member of Congress. Part of his interesting thing to do later on with the assassination is this this casket that was originally that they said that Kennedy was in and they and he went and wrote a memo to Kassenbach. And what's very interesting about Kassenbach is on the first part of the weekend after the assassination of Kennedy, he comes out with a document that says, basically, that we have to prove to the American public that this was, thing was done alone. Okay? And this set up all that stuff. So what I'm saying here is that Earl Cabell, because of his involvement with this casket, is now aligned with creating a scenario where they create this wonderful scenario of this casket having to be thrown out in the Atlantic Ocean, never to be seen again. Deep-sixed. Yep, they deep-sixed the evidence, and no longer they said, no, no, this isn't necessary. But it was. And when you tie this into the fact that Aubrey Wright, Dennis McGuire, and Vernon O'Neill were never called before the Warren Commission for testimony, it really tightens things up because, you know, Aubrey Wright... And Dennis McGuire, as far as they're concerned, loaded that body in that casket. But there was a necessary time enough for the body to be removed from it. And then they come and enter back into the travel room, problem one, and escort the body, out, the, the casket out, okay? And now there's a fight that's ensued with Rose, the, who would who was pressing for the autopsy to be performed in, in Texas, Okay, and Secret Service says, no, 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 Uh, we're taking this body. And as far as I'm concerned, if Rose won that argument, they would open that cast, the whole whole wax would explode it. Yep. So what I'm seeing here is the Secret Service 
is very complicit in this stuff because you have the motorcade route, which had to be approved, through and with Harold Cavill, whose brother was Charles Cavill, who was fired along with Dulles and Bissell over the Bay of Pigs thing, and Kennedy's trying to make all these things go on to stop all this nonsense, stop Vietnam, change a lot of things that were going on. And there's so much more to this story that could be examined. But the main point is Kennedy was trying to make so many things happen. Now, who had the power to do this? Who had the ability? Well, if the Secret Service can do this through a compartmentalized fair, I am convinced that Will Greer was the only one who made that intersection possible. And then Kellerman had to fall in place, and everything that happened after that, the autopsy could be set in places needed to be. Now, before we get to the autopsy, you, you mentioned before something about Kennedy's back wound and how nobody saw it at Parkland. Yes, and yes, I, yes. And I remember talking to you before about how they might have possibly fabricated this, this back wound to support, of course, the theory of a soul assassin from behind. So how do you how how do you, how do you explain this back wound, Russ? Well, okay, it's pretty easy because if you have nobody in Parkland seeing a back wound, okay, and they're lifting him up, and they should have seen some. I mean, somebody there was enough people there, but there's no evidence to support anybody seeing a back wound. Yet they saw the head wound, and they saw. The neck will, okay? So, what do we have here? You have William Greer with the clothes, William Greer with the body. He retains the clothes through the whole time the autopsy has taken place, okay? Uh, as I've told you, John Liggett, I see as a necessary part for the transportation of the body from Parkland. And I think Mr. Liggett took a ride on that plane. And I see the body of John Kennedy in the front part of the Air Force One. And that's where decisions as in flight would take place to create that back wound. Now, why do they want to create the back wound? Well, they got to get a shot from the back, right? Right. And if the autopsy guys were on the fix, which is pretty well proven that Humes was obfuscating this thing, you can make anything almost happen. But what's important is that there were x-rays taken of those wounds, all the wounds. And the x-ray dispersion on the back wound shows no more lead or copper contained in the body or on the clothes of Kennedy's body than is, would normally be found. Okay? Obviously, the clothes would not have lead and copper in it. This is part of the fabric, but I don't believe that to be. But the, what's really important is, if there's no more lead and copper in that wound, then what is the wound? And what was also found was a foreign substance. And this is all documented in a House Select Committee. Okay, this is a document that I don't think too many people actually saw. Or they take a look at. They just, it's passed by. And uh, if there's no, if those compounds are not in that body and you have a shallow wound, and if you listen to the audio testimony of uh, Mr. Liggett, or not Mr. Liggett, Mr. Lipsy, 
you will hear him say they looked, spent more time looking for where that bullet went, and they couldn't find it. They took all the wood, all the all the body parts out. They couldn't find where it went, and they thought, well, it could be anywhere. But that's really important because if that's a shallow wound, and there's no lead or copper in that in that wound, this is what I see: Mr. Liggett is in Air Force One creating that wound so that he could set the place for this obfuscation to follow later. Right, so they're, they're basically searching for ghost bullets at that point. Exactly. It, it, you know, it was all you know, you know. All this stuff was cover up. You've got you've got the body coming in in a, in a shipping casket, then the pre-autopsy, and then they take the body out, and the bronze cast is delivered after Jackie and, and Bobby and that that ambulance. They brought it, you know, Greer, Greer brought it around to the back, okay? And now the bronze cask is introduced into the into the autopsy area, into the ante room, okay? At that point, uh, Siebert and O'Neill were not there. They were not allowed until the second autopsy took place after eight. Right. Now, uh, Mr. Lipsy clearly in interviews says that the autopsy started a little bit before seven. So he was there the whole time. That would have been part of the pre-autopsy, not the official. That would official. be the pre-autopsy. Right. It's important to understand that because, you know, they, he goes out and gets sandwiches for the guys. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you really have to get into the information of the case. It's important to understand that, that Lipsy saw this thing at a time beforehand, and he's looking. He'd never seen an autopsy. He'd never even seen a dead body. So he's going along with what he's saying, and there's also... In his, uh, he, he made a, a body sheet out of this that he sees three wounds, three wounds in Kennedy. Back wound, he's got the neck wound and the one coming out the back. He's got a, he's got a spot located in the back, bottom part of his neck, and then he's got a head wound. And of course, when he's in the autopsy, he's listened to the, 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 the pathologist's working on the body, so he's going along with thinking, hey, these guys know what they're doing. Well, we know the Humes and Boswell never performed an autopsy on a real person, you know, with these kinds of wounds, okay? So, it, this is all very interesting. So there we have pretty much the way things go uh, and how we can make all this stuff happen. And, you know, with William Greer in charge of the clothes, all he has to do is get Put a hole in that in that that suit, right, and line it up so it makes it line up with the uh, the hole in the back. Yeah, and this part of the pre-autopsy, and this is something Doug Horn was saying too that this is when they were working on his head, you know, to uh, to make it to make it appear more like shots from behind, because there was even testimony at Parkland. I think it was from Nurse Bell that when she first saw Kennedy's body, she didn't realize where he was injured from because he's laying on his back prone up. And she said his face was perfect. But if yeah. you look, if you, if you look at some of the, uh, quote, official autopsy photos from later on at Bethesda, you see this, you know, gigantic groove in his right temple. And she would have definitely noticed that at Parkland if it had been there from, from the beginning, don't you think? 
Oh, certainly, yeah. I, and I, this is where I see John Lincoln is very important because he had the necessary time during the flight of Air Force One to Andrews to make an examination of the body, and then information could be conveyed to the doctors to create the obfuscation for what we came to know. No, so I don't see John Liggett as a, a necessary uh, thing other than creating the back wound and uh, examining the body enough so that the doctors could know what he's doing. Because I think Mr. Horn has done a pretty thorough uh, job as far as the fragments taken out and the creation of the wound and all that stuff. Right, you know, there was Dennis David, he, he was talking about how the, that he was given a specimen jar with lead fragments in it that was basically enough enough lead in there to make up two bullets at least. Yeah. And yeah. you know that's way more than than what they say, you know, was accounted for if Oswald was shooting by himself and Kennedy was only hit twice. Because other well, fragments yeah, other and fragments that goes were found. The, the wounds of family too, because there's there's more fragments than the you know the bullets too pristine. You know. Yeah, and there but was one one magic bullet. Three ninety nine is a whole other world. It's yeah, the whole other world. Uh, one other point here, uh, uh, Gerald Custer, who was the guys who took the the uh, X rays, he said that when they they lifted Kennedy's body up, uh, X rays that a bullet fell out of the back. Now, he doesn't examine, he doesn't say exactly uh, where in the back. He said it just fell out of the back. Now, he could have been in a position where he didn't see exactly it falling out of the back wound. Now, the x-ray dispersion proves that there was no lead in copper, so we don't see a bullet coming from there based upon evidence. But the bullet could have popped. What I see is that you have the throat wound, Bullet goes in the throat, goes through his neck, and stays lodged near the back of his spine. And that's the wound that uh, Mr. Lipsy saw. Right. And, of course, the doctors uh, in, in Bethesda only noted the back wound and the head wound and the throat wound. And okay. I think the doctors... In the front. In the front. Yeah, and I think the doctors at Bethesda were specifically they were specifically told to stay away from the throat, not to dissect the throat area. Is that correct? That's true. They, yeah, the guy in the cigar, I believe, was doing that, sitting in the audience. But I think that there was much more going on here than that. I think these doctors were, were directed in a certain fashion in other aspects, okay? Oh, yeah. Because uh, later... Yeah, later on, Humes is in there, and he's double-tracking like a son of a gun to try and cover up what he's saying. And, and at some points and others, he just won't come out and say. So, Right, and Fink, Fink was kind of caught with his pants down there at the garrison trial. Um, oh, yeah. Of course, he didn't, <laughs> of course, he didn't come into the room until until much later after the autopsy had already started and all the, and all the chicanery was yeah. done already. See, he missed the bullet coming out of the back right. that, that Gerald Custer saw because that bullet fell to the floor but according to what he's saying that Ebersol picked it up now Ebersol is part of this whole thing too okay he's and he's hooked up with the administrator guy that made all these guys in uh, Bethesda sign a document that they go oh no you don't say nothing you don't say nothing okay so the obfuscation is there at a high level okay 
Oh, so you're seeing the progression of all these people working as a network together. And that's basically how you have the obfuscation done through compartmentalization. They don't all have to know. They're just all doing what's going on. So now what we get to, who's who caused, who made this happen? Well, you know that money is important, okay, in all things. I deeply feel that George Brown, a Brown and Boot, is the main money man in this whole thing. And why do I feel this? Because shortly after Kennedy was assassinated, Mr. Brown sold his right to the company, to a corporation by the name of Halliburton. And Halliburton is a continuation up, even to this day, as business as usual. And, and it migrates into everything that we see in front of us. And the CIA is the agency by which this got done. Okay? And you can get into Fletcher Prouty and how he looks at things and how the CIA in its own compartmentalized fashion can get different people to do different things at different times and not each one of them know the other parts of the puzzle. And of course, who would be in charge of making this whole thing to come together? Well, I see Alan Dulles as a big part of this because he was put in as director of the War Commission by Johnson. Now, Johnson knew he got fired by Kennedy before he appointed him. Right. And you start getting into Johnson's selection of the member, especially Gerald Ford, when Nixon had to resign on the due to a lot of stuff with Watergate. Uh, even before that, you had Spiro Agnew as vice president. He had to resign over what was to be a tax thing. He's replaced by vice president Ford. Okay. Then Ford becomes president because Nixon resigns. Then Ford is elected. And if you look at history, you start understanding all these events in the order that they were before the Kennedy assassination, in the time period that it was there, and also what happened afterwards. And it's all about the money, and it has to do with the wars and, and all this military built-up. And this is where you have uh, Eisenhower coming out about the uh, military complex. Right. Because he understood all this. And it wasn't too much to do uh, otherwise. And why I say George Brown is because he was awarded the largest governmental contract ever. And in Vietnam, his company, Brown Roof, was in charge of all the preliminaries that were necessary, the contracts for setting up for the harbors and all different things involved in Vietnam, which Kennedy was trying to stop. Right, they're in the war business. They 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 go they, in and they, uh, they got to keep that money flowing. Oh, definitely. These definitely. guys are the evilest guys they ever wanted to be. And like you said, still and, still to this day, Halliburton is 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 still in it. You know, they made billions oh, and billions and billions of dollars rebuilding these countries after we, you know, bond them to shreds. And they're everywhere. They're they're they're, they're everywhere around the Mediterranean. They just play. All we have is the CAA going in, doing their thing, and setting up all these contracts to go on. Oil, 
military, you name it, whatever is necessary. They create the theater. The players come in. They rob the resources. They make their money. And they set up for the next guy in the meantime. And they keep moving around, moving around, moving around. And you're seeing this scenario over and over and over. It's nothing but a game of hopscotch. Right. Now, hearing that, it sparked a little something in my brain here. Um, you know who uh, Jim Braden or I think Eugene Hale Braden, you know, he was arrested sure. and coming out of the Dow Techs? Yep. Well, he was uh, supposedly in Dallas on oil business. And he had come from L.A., and he traveled in the company of a, and I can't remember if it was George Brown or not. It was definitely somebody named Brown that he had well, traveled. It been George Brown, I'm speaking of. George Brown was a, just a, you know, he was a. If you investigate the Brown Brown Root situation, he was a, a very smart salesman type of guy. Right. And you know he, uh, during the depression, he was hooked up with uh, Berger, the the owner of the School Book Depository. Right, D.H. Bird, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, so these guys were all tied in. Uh, I mean, they, they like to say uh, it's all the oil men. Then they they are a good little group. They had a they had a little uh, you know their own little thing like Elks. You know, but they they were all they were all kind of doing it. But those guys all had their place. Like uh, Murchison, you know, his ties to uh, to uh, the FBI had there. Right. I mean. You know, the, the, and again, you just see this compartmentalism of, it's like, you know, these guys don't have to talk in the wild. Business as usual. They know what they got to do. And this is where you got to keep Johnson out of it because, you know, Johnson became president, but the man that made him was George Brown. And there's a lawyer by the name of Edward Clark who was tied into all these people. And he was known as the fixer. So you have a lawyer, okay, who doesn't have to disclose all this stuff just because of what he is. He's able to manipulate all these things through the course of business. If you investigate Mr. Uh, Edward Clark, the lawyer, you'll start seeing how a lot of this stuff in Texas was taking place. And when you really get into it deep, you'll start understanding that this is why it's a Texas thing. And all the guys, whether the shooters were whoever they were, okay. And I think that uh, that your buddy Doug Doug Campbell is investigating a very good aspect of this. But you know, all these guys are play, they're playing tiddly waves with the CIA, and they don't necessarily have to know the other part of the story. And they certainly aren't the guys that made the you know the the conspiracy get all covered up at the end. They're just doing their part. Right, and they're all tied in with the John Birch Society, which you know, which you can tie into a lot of people in power back then as well. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I see Lee Harvey Oswald, just a level guy. I mean, he was definitely FBI. Now you can you can look into Lee Harvey Oswald and his migration of, of things again. Now that's a whole other aspect, but I think very few people realize that. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald, after basic training, went to uh, an FBI O&I camp before heading out towards California, where he was shipped out to Suzuki for his radar. He had his training in California. 
And you also start getting into the other Oswald. That's a whole nother app, okay? And uh, that explains some of the, the different things that possibly could have set, happened. And I think that uh, John Armstrong has brought some serious information into it. Whether you believe all of it or not, you have to take a serious look at it because uh, it's important to understand that, you know, when you're involved in some espionage and stuff that the CIA has to do, there's always two of everything. Right. Two of everything, you know. And and they all have to cover their butt in such a fashion that no one's going to find out. And that really tells us why we can't figure this assassination thing out to its, its fullest extent even after all this time. And not alone just that, but all these people with the wrong theories are based upon the evidence as they go. So you really had to get to a point where you are right now to sit back and think about something like I have come across. Otherwise, though, we do have the information in the price exhibit that allows you to kind of understand without all this other information that's come out that that body had the opportunity and the time and the possibility to get out of that casket in trauma room one. And that is very, very important. And, you know, and I'm guilty of it too, Russ. It's a lot of people, their eyes glaze over when you start talking about the medical evidence. But in the big scheme of things, it's very, very important to understand and realize the what happened, the how it happened, the who the who made it happens. And it lets you into a little window of who had a hand in all this. And, and you can definitely say the Secret Service most definitely was up to something that day. And, well, among other people. Um, but, yeah, they definitely dropped the ball that day. Now, was it on purpose? I mean, because they did their job in other places, but it seems like Dallas was very, very lax in, in, in their security concerns and their actions following the assassination wanting to hightail it out of Dallas. And I was listening to Walt Brown on Doug's show. He actually he actually said that to take that body out of Texas it wasn't it wasn't a crime because a I guess it was a a priest or something had had uh I forget the exact words of what he said, but it it turns out that they did have the right to take that body back. You know, it wasn't that the, the the something that the priest did made it okay. I'm not exactly sure, but I, I would. Send, yeah, you also have the three death certificates. Yeah, to consider. Yeah, that too. The, the original one was kind of you know pretty open up, you know, and uh, I mean, I mean, really, Rob, who can really tell exactly how this thing happened? Okay, I can only myself. I, I'm lucky to have had the advantage to have lived in this time period. I'm very lucky to have had my grandmother at the time when I was very young influence me and formulate some of this uh, wonderful intrigue that I had by history that I would examine this stuff this clearly and put it together with everything that I had because it's not about me. It's about all of us. Okay? And, and, and as long as we keep arguing about this stuff, we're never going to figure it out. Right. It's about we're getting, getting there. Doing it slow, but we're getting there. Yeah, it's about getting to the truth, and that's the only thing that should matter. And an accurate sense of the events that took place, 
and just getting to the bottom of everything, tying it all together. And I think you've done a really, really good job of doing that here on these past couple shows, Russ, for everybody, you know, when it comes to the medical evidence, because like I said, a lot of people discount it or, or just gloss over it, don't understand it very well. And, you know, you laid it out perfectly in, in, in layman's terms, easy to understand for everybody. And from a unique perspective, uh, from somebody that was touched so early in life, you know, by the events of November 22nd, 1963, and someone blessed with the perspective at such a young age to want to understand it and get to the bottom of it and take the initiative to, you know, crack that Warren Commission report, read it, you know, and then read the evidence to supposedly support it and understand that there was something something terribly wrong with it and i couldn't thank you enough for coming on the lone gummin podcast you know you're my friend in real life and on facebook and uh hopefully everybody out there will get a better sense of of uh the medical evidence so thank you very much russ for coming on man it was fun yeah, i appreciate it I'm, I'm hopeful that some people will take some of the things that i've said and and really look at it maybe they're gonna maybe they're gonna uncover some things that maybe i've overlooked I know that my opinion on this hasn't changed too much in about five years, other than the three-two-three shot that Sherry Peaster brought forth the forensics enough to disclose that. You know, uh, I know Sherry and I have a little bit of difference of opinion about stuff, uh, but uh, I think we're close enough that we can understand that we can take this and move on and further and get this thing to the point where we can come closer to the truth or just about close as we can. You know, I think this is this is a very important thing for us to understand because it affects every one of our lives today. Exactly. Exactly, Russ. All right, that's it, buddy. We're gonna we're gonna call it for today and I appreciate you being here and stay on the line with me here as uh we, we conclude this and everybody head over to twenty two November network wordpress.com for all the relevant links and pictures and diagrams that we talked about in these past couple episodes. You're going to need them to understand what we're talking about here. And it's, like I said, it's very important to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. And we are just helping you do that. And like Russ said, hopefully this can get a conversation started with some people out there who believe and who don't believe. And uh, that's why we're doing this. So I thank Russ LaChapelle for joining me here today. Everybody, head to 22NovemberNetwork.wordpress.com. You can get us at Twitter, at 22NovemberNetwork. Network has no vowels in it. So it's N-T-W-R-K. That's it for today. This some bitches in the can. Beamed up to the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is Rob Clark thanking Russ LaChapelle for joining me on the Lone Gunman Podcast. Peace.
right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.